coming up on this episode of the CJOB Sports Show podcast, we're going to hear from a hockey hero, a very happy university football coach, a very proud swimming coach, and a recap of an event-filled final round of the U.S. Open Golf Tournament. So let's get this show on the road. Speaking of heroes... This is one of my favorite new NHL awards. It's the Willie O'Ree Award, and it goes to someone who, and and the all the nominees are the most selfless people you will meet on earth. But they do so much for their community, uh, all for hockey, uh, and uh, it, it, but not just hockey. Culture and society are a big part of it as well. And uh, the first ever winner of this award, of course, was the late Darcy Hogan, uh, the former coach and general manager of the Humboldt Broncos. Pretty, pretty big skates to fill, uh, certainly with the first award winner. Uh, but uh, we have on the line from Calgary tonight uh, the 2021 Willie O'Reed Award winner. His name is Kevin Hodgson, and don't get him mixed up with the Kevin Hodgson. Uh, who once played goal for the Detroit Red Wings. I was joking with Kevin when I was uh, texting with him on Friday to line this up. Uh, yep, I was actually doing the play-by-play of the game where he gave up the winning goal in the Memorial Cup final. <laughs> Kevin, uh, uh, apparently that happens to you a lot. Welcome to the show. Yeah, and you know, the strangest place, strangest place that ever happened to me was in Dublin, Ireland, of all places, where the Canadian, ambassador, the Canadian ambassador to Ireland thought I was that other Kevin Hudson, so he wanted to talk about Stanley Cup rings and that sort of stuff and was a little disappointed to find out I was a different guy. You know, and I was so embarrassed because I know Kevin's dad, Jerry. Uh, I've had uh, previous dealings with him in my first go-around here in Winnipeg. But, you know, and I went back, checked the picture, thought, okay, well, you know, a few years have passed. But anyway, you are who you are. (laughs) And uh, you're with Heroes Hockey, H-E-R-O-S uh, is how it's spelled, and it stands for Hockey Education Reaching Out Society. And uh, first off, Kevin, congratulations on winning the Willie O'Ree Community Hero Award. That must be something very special for you. You know, it, it is, and even uh, even five days, you know, in between hearing and, and talking to you today, it's still it still blows me away. I actually just got off the phone with, Howard, who was one of the finals from Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, when, when you, when you get to know these other finalists and you hear what they're doing, like I'm talking to this guy going, well, how am I the winner? And you're not like, it, it just, it's, it's just so, uh, it, it's certainly not something I ever expected. And, and it's a real privilege to have my name remotely attached to Willie O'Ree's. I'll tell you. Well, tell us a little bit about heroes, how the program works, uh, uh, you know, how far across the country it's spread and that sort of thing, Kevin. Yeah, so we have, we'll have, this fall we'll have 31 programs across 12 cities in Canada, and we actually do a program in Belfast, Northern Ireland as well. We'll have 900 kids, over 900 kids on the ice, uh, over 300 volunteers on the ice alongside them. And, and really what it is, is it's making sure that the kids that are most likely to be forgotten by sport, and specifically hockey, have a place to play. So, financial and social barriers uh, in some of our programs in some of our cities we also offer programming for kids living with physical and cognitive challenges and that's certainly something we're looking to bring to winnipeg as well uh, but you know in winnipeg we've got four programs all located in the north end and, and that's where our founder grew up but it's just it's really just to make sure that 
that finances and any other barriers that aren't aren't the kids choosing that you know that aren't aren't the kids' fault. That can't be the reason they can't play. If they want to play, somebody's got to give them a place to play. And why wouldn't it be us? We're really happy to do it. Yeah, and and that was the bonus. I I mean, I wanted to talk to you because I I, I just think there should be far more of these kinds of conversations with people who are doing things for all the right reasons, like you, Kevin Hodgson, and your group are. Uh, but then I found out the neat bonus was, yeah, the founder of the Heroes Program is from right here in Winnipeg. His name's Norm Flynn. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I'm very honest when I say Winnipeg is kind of our, our heart and soul. I mean, we, it, Norm grew up in the, in the North End and that when he was 10 or 11 years old, he was on a path that he didn't feel like was pointed in the right direction and started playing hockey. And by the time he was 16, 17, he was playing in the WHL. Now I'll date him a little bit and tell you that one of the teams he played for was the Winnipeg Warriors. So that's how long ago that we're talking here. <laughs> but um, but those those four years of playing in the WHL uh, led him to uh, the University of Winnipeg back when they had a team. So he got an education because of his hockey and, and finished that process and said, someday I'm going to do that for one kid. And fast forward all these years later, 15,000 kids have gone through our program and counting and it's, it's just grown into this thing that's all across the country. And, and it certainly, I think he, he would tell you exceeded what his expectations were, but I'm, I'm very fortunate because I get to work alongside him every single day. And, and he's been, you know, he was, re- he was very willing to sort of hand the keys off to me to take it the next 20 years, but I, I still get to lean on him every single day. And there's a lot of people in Winnipeg, who know Norm Flynn and, and he is a big personality and he's a big spirit and he's a guy who gets stuff done. So there's, I know there's people listening today going, Oh, Norm Flynn. I know who you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, I would imagine there's some people that say, and and they know who the real Kevin Hodgson is who we're speaking to (laughs) the executive director of heroes hockey. And Kevin, how did you get involved in the program And, and maybe connect the dots between you and Norm, if you will. Yeah. So uh, I've always worked in, in sort of the helping profession, social work. I started that in the mid to late nineties. And in 2006, Norm rolled into Calgary and was presenting to a bunch of school board personnel and different community service providers about this heroes thing that he had started in Vancouver in 2000, had then taken to Toronto in 2005 and now wanted to add Calgary to the mix. And one of my colleagues at the organization I was working for um, was in the in the room when he was talking and she came back and said so there was this guy norm and he was talking about heroes and she's describing it to me and i said man that sounds that sounds like that could be the real deal that sounds like a special thing she goes glad you said that i signed you up to volunteer so (laughs) so like really my my passion and my calling found me i'm one of those those very fortunate people so from 2006 to 2012 i was a volunteer here in calgary and and i very very quickly became a heart and soul volunteer in terms of I, I was willing to dedicate all the time I possibly could to it because I saw what it was doing for the lives of kids. I saw there was having an impact, but I also knew that it could, it, it could grow and it could be even bigger and it could have even greater impacts. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And in 2012, they asked me if I wanted to come join them as an employee, as the executive director. And I said, yes, before the, the sentence came out of my mouth, out of Norm's mouth. And, uh, off we went, and and I I probably talked to him more than anybody in the entire world. We spot we speak literally every single day, probably ten times a day. It's a true team effort. You know, this award had my name attached to it, but it's Norm's legacy and uh, and all of the volunteers who give so much of their time. To, I you know I just I just got to pick up the award for other people. 
Yeah, and that's something I think we should uh, probably mention here too, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Hodgson is the executive director of Heroes Hockey, uh, the winner of the Willie O'Ree Award, which was presented last week. It's for... Uh, well, being a community hero uh, in the sport of hockey, uh, and, and Kevin and his group certainly are that, but you can't do it without volunteers, and, and you don't really have uh, a, a big base as far as full-time staff is concerned. To make this go, it has to be through volunteers. Absolutely. I mean, our our whole employment group is Norm and myself working from our kitchen table. I since 2012, I get in trouble with my wife every single night because we got to clear the table of hero stuff to have dinner, and then the mess is back <laughs> on the table. Um, and that's you know, and and that's by design. We want to make sure that the maximum amount of people's dollars that they give to us can go directly towards the kids. And so, you know, if we had to if we had to employ everybody who went on the ice with kids, it would be cost prohibitive. And and we don't charge any player a penny to play. The, we we want to make sure there's no barriers. And so. We have 300 volunteers, and I've found 300 of the most incredible human beings across the country, including a really large group in Winnipeg. You know, we've got about 30 volunteers there, you know, school teachers and and, and social workers and you name it. Like, uh, there's a place for everybody, you know, future police officers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, if it, it, the volunteers are really the magic because they're the ones who give of themselves every single day. They're the ones who, you know, we bust our kids to the rink. We feed them when they're there. We bust them home and they're riding the bus with the kids. They're the ones making sure the food is there. They're the ones standing out minus 40 uh, after the bus has dropped them off to make sure somebody comes and picks them up. Yeah, you know, it, that, that that's what makes it special and that's what makes it go. And like I say, I, I just really got to pick up the award because of that. Kevin, if somebody's listening and say, oh, you know what, man, this is something I want to be a part of. How do they become a volunteer? Yeah, so our website is Heroes Hockey, H-E-R-O-S, hockey.com. Um, you go on there, people will see that we don't spend a lot of money on fluff. Our website is pretty basic and easy to navigate. There's information there about volunteering. Um, there, you know, my contact information's on there. Happy to talk to anybody. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got a big group of boosters in Winnipeg. Anybody who knows anybody attached with the Platinum Jets, they've been supporters of yeah. us for a long time. They'll, they'll tell you what we're all about. Um, but uh, that's probably the best place to find us. And, and we're on social media as well, you know, Twitter and Instagram at Heroes Hockey, and you can get a flavor of what we're doing and what our objectives are. You know, we're, we're not looking for people who have extensive hockey experience. We want good people because our goals are not to produce a Winnipeg Jets player. Our goal is to make sure that we use the game of hockey to make life a lot easier for kids outside of the rink. The rink is just where we, we practice and build our life skills. And uh, so we've, we've got volunteers who have never, ever put on skates, because there's always kids who need a little love off the ice and, and need some help navigating some stuff. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking for people with big hearts and, and just who care and uh, always looking to grow our team. And, and that was going to be my final question to you, Kevin. How gratifying is it to yourself or Norm or any of your volunteers across the country when this young kid that came in in 2008 or 2009, their life was spiraling, and heroes hockey help them find their way and they come back 12, 13 years later, uh, you know, whether they're successful or not, doesn't matter. But as long as they're living their life the right way, does it get any better than that? Yeah. You know, I, I always say that the most powerful thing in the world is when a kid discovers that anything's possible. And that starts when we get them on the ice, because the kids that were 
we're providing an opportunity to some of them have been told they don't belong in the game because of the color of their skin or the neighborhood they live in or their gender or their identity, whatever that is. But all of them have been made to feel like it. So if we can give them a place to play on the ice, then they do one thing that seemed impossible, then anything's possible. And so, you know, when anytime a kid sort of reaches adulthood and starts achieving dreams, we still can remember that very first moment when they came to the rink and they were scared to step on the ice. They were scared to fall down. I always say to them, if you're going to fall seven times, our job is to teach you how to get up eight times. We'll do it. We'll be there for you. No kid will leave our program saying if you had just cared a little bit more or believed in me a little bit more. But, um, you know, one of the things we do is we don't want the kids to graduate high school and come right back and volunteer. We want, we want to launch them. We want to get them into vocation or post-secondary or whatever their dream is. And then when they're established and feel confident as adults, then come back. And, and we've been kicked off the ice in a lot of cities by kids who say, I can do this better than you. I've had my whistle taken away in a few cities. And you know what? They're 100% right because I, I didn't grow up in the north end of Winnipeg. I don't know that, that experience. I can listen to it and have them talk about it. But when a, when a kid who's grown up there wants to give back to their community, that's the most gratifying thing in the world. And we're just happy to be able to provide a place for them to do it. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you so much, Kelly. Appreciate you having us on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Kevin Hodgson from Heroes Hockey. Uh, and again, uh, what's that website just before we let you go, Kevin, if somebody wants to go on there and find out more about your great program? Yeah, it's just heroeshockey.com, H-E-R-O-S, hockey.com. The winners of the Willie, and I'm saying winners, Kevin was the winner, but as you heard from him, he shares that with everybody, uh, the winners of the Willie O'Ree Community Hero Award. This has been going on for a bit. We did know that there was going to be a Canada West football season this year. Um, we knew that it would be somewhat of a truncated schedule uh, from what it normally is. Usually they play eight games, uh, but this year they're only going to play six. But it was all kind of up in the air until today when Canada West announced that their season is going to start on Saturday, September the 25th. And I think I could hear the whooping and the hollering all the way from my place, uh, halfway across Winnipeg, uh, from where Brian Doby lives. Or, or Brian, were you maybe in the office when that uh, uh, announcement came down? Um, nope. I was, uh, I was my my house in North Kildonan and, uh, and, of course, anticipating that announcement. So, uh, and you're right. You're right. Uh, there was uh, there was great happiness at, at um, I'll say at all the Bison households. So yeah, yeah, we're we're really excited. It feels so real. Like it just you know CFL's going and and it just you know now us and and uh, yeah, it it just it feels though that it was never going to happen. Uh, that's the other yeah. side of it. So it it almost I don't know if it's joy or it's relief or it's what but it feels good yeah we'll keep our fingers crossed that the trickle down effect pretty soon uh it'll goes to the winnipeg high school football league and then minor football exactly because it'll be i know i live right out by the transcona nationals uh football field coach and there's nothing better uh that a friday night when those lights are on and you can hear the parents hollering and the kids uh playing and having a great time it's just perfect ambiance so uh, and, and people who live by IG Field are going to have that starting in late September. You know, like you said, you knew it was coming, but un- until there is a date on the calendar, 
I guess there's, yep. especially with what we've gone through this year, there's always that little bit of doubt in the back of your mind. Absolutely. It's been, and I'm sure anybody listening can relate to their, their own jobs and professions. I mean, it, you know, you know, you're waiting for things through this pandemic and you're waiting for the next step and the next foot to fall, you know, so to speak. And, and, and there's so much hope and then so often it's dashed and, you know, you have to readjust your plans. I, we went through, we were scheduled to be on the field all through April. Uh, silver lining is it was mostly snow all through April. So, but we were scheduled to, to run our spring ball all through April. And of course we had to cancel it. Uh, we moved it to begin May 4th. We got on the field in 10 person pods for two days, May 4th, May 5th. And, and uh, the, the, the night of May uh, 5th, our athletic director sent on an all-points bulletin basically to all bias and sports coaches that cease and desist, stop your programs right now. We're, we're locking all this down. And uh, there, there went May. We rescheduled to begin June 1. Had to cancel out for the same reasons. And here we are today. So this is great news. It, it's just great news. We, we can't wait to get, our, get all our kids back together. I mean, we've got almost 100 football players. I'm in a meeting right now to take this call with, with our team manager. And we're literally planning um, uh, the, uh, our lockers and our, our locker room and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, off our, off our roster. So it's, it, it, it feels like the real thing right now. It's pretty exciting. So, so coach Doby, and by the way, um, a little birdie told me that this is a very special week uh, for a certain coach of the U of M Bison's who, uh, you know, I won't name names, but his initials are Brian Doby. Congratulations on 25 years in the program. Oh, thank you. I mean, hey, listen, uh, I'll tell you, as soon as I hear that, and I appreciate it very much, and all I can think about is Garth Pischke, 38 years. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So so, what a career Garth had. But, yeah, like, you know, and our Bison staff, there's – you know, we're, we're, we're getting older. I mean, so many of us, have, you know, Ken Bentley's been around for 30-something, and Mike Sarant, I think, is about a year ahead of me. And, you know, I'm going into my 26th season. And uh, just, yeah, yeah, you know, I always said it was my dream job and living the dream. So, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it's pretty cool. So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you taking note of that. Thank you. <laughs> Next hour, I'm actually going to be talking to a coach who's been around a little bit longer than you have, uh, Lostin Alterney, because uh, uh, one of oh. his protégés, uh, yeah, Kelsey, Kelsey Wag, or Wag rather, is doing yeah. uh, outstanding in Toronto. But let's get back to the football here. You mentioned that uh, you and the managers are planning the locker assignments and that sort of thing. From what you know, Coach, are you going to be able to proceed a little closer uh, to what would be a normal setup, or are there still going to be some, uh, you know, pretty uh, strict guidelines that you're going to have to follow to get into this season? It's a really good question. Um, I've been working really closely with with the Bombers, um, with with Wade Miller and and Kyle Walters, of course, in particular, and, and the facilities people here, because we're we're, we're helping them out through you know, kind of about a six-week period uh, while they go through their preparations and camp and all that. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because they have had to jump through uh, a lot of hoops. And and there are rules, guidelines, restrictions 
that are imposed upon upon them and all the CFL teams. So un, unquestionably, we're going to be going through the same thing. I mean, we 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 will, and and it, and it's kind of compounded because our campus, our university, of course, um, will certainly pay great due diligence to to adhere to you know whatever will come down with that. So we, for example, we're as excited as I am. I mean, I'm at IGF right now. We're, we're at my office working here and, um, but our team can't come in here yet. You know, we, we have to jump through a lot of hoops just to get into our own complex. Um, that's going to take some doing and, uh, we, we don't know how that's going to turn out. Um, we, we literally, and I, I, I hope, and I think we'll get in, but we literally could be a team without a home that there is that possibility. For example, mm-hmm. We could practice every night at, at the East Turf Field, right beside the stadium, um, and not even come into our complex. Uh, like, could that happen? I don't think it will, but it could. So there's a lot of things. Um, yeah. Travel, you know, travel. I, I, you know, we're just all this is happening fast now, and um, yeah, we're, we're we've discussed and really preparing for a lot of contingency contingencies. So. Uh, well, we'll see how it turns out, but you can tell I'm talking fast because <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, uh, it's, all, yeah. it's all good stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so now we just talked to Kyle Walters about this earlier today. You know, he has that great unknown. He has these veteran players that haven't been on a football field for more than a year, not knowing how they're going to react. I would imagine there's some trepidation on your part as well as to you know. How well have the kids trained? How much lead time are we going to need to get them to where they're you know going to be able to play the game and not get hurt? And 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 you know how much of their skills have slipped because they haven't had the chance to things kind of rolling around as well. Absolutely. I mean, the the one difference between us and the Bombers um, was that in the fall of 2020, uh, we did jump through a lot of hoops. It took us a couple months. Uh, to get all the ducks in order, but we were able to practice. So we, we went two or three times a week throughout the entire fall. Now, it was a sort of a, a, you know, a different practice. I mean, there were a lot of regulations that we had to follow, but it, but it was still football. And, and I think that at least kind of kept the ball rolling for us and a lot of our kids, right? Um, but nevertheless, yeah. And you got to keep in mind, too, like we just can't go out and trade for somebody or just sign somebody for X amount of dollars. And, and, you know, our team is our team. We, we, you know, in a period of two years from 2019 till we hit the field in 2021, it'll be two years. And, uh, we've graduated a lot of guys. Um, I was just just going to ask how much, how much different will the team look? Oh, we have lost through graduation, through guys just getting older and deciding not to keep going and, and through CFL draft, we've lost uh, our our starting five offensive line and our first man in and our second man in. We've lost almost our uh, you know our top veterans on our D line. Uh, we over a period of two years, we lost five defensive linemen, just five defensive linemen to to the CFL draft that aren't returning to us. So, um, I mean, you know. That's a lot of defense alignment from one program. I mean, we're pretty proud of that group, but they're all gone now. So we're going to have a lot of kids, like a lot of, and we, and we got a two-cohort cohort recruiting year, meaning that 
the kids that came in this this past fall and got to practice they're still rookies they they've never they've never been on a sideline or in a game in in u sport football um and then of course we've got the recruiting class coming in this fall so yeah we're it's going to be i did the math i'm trying to remember what it was something something like 47 percent or something of our teams is brand new to, to university football i've never experienced that not even close you know in my career so it, it's it's going to be challenging it's exciting it's going to be an adventure it's going to be what it is and uh yeah. Just getting getting back again. It's almost like you're rebuilding your program, which is an exciting challenge for everybody. Lots of opportunities, and I know I know the players. You know, are just super excited about it. You know, they just can't wait. They've been working out. And they they want to get on the field. Yeah, they'll there'll be a lot of hey, forty seven. <laughs> You, 89, you know. <laughs> literally, literally, I was describing to one of our third-year veterans, um, asked him how his workouts were going on the phone, and he told me, and then I I said, I mentioned a player's name who was a rookie with us this past fall. Um, same side of the ball, both on defense, and I said, he sent me a picture last night, you know, a couple of pictures of him working out. Silence, and he went, Coach, I don't know who that is. I went, he's one of your teammates. You were on the field with him last year. But they were so segregated. Yeah, they don't yeah. even it's 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 just even building your team. It's not just X's and O's. It's it, it's it's gonna take time for them to bond and, and to feel like a team. And you know, I think that's a huge advantage for the bombers. I know Kyle signed so many vets from the Grey Cup team yeah. and, and that's gonna be a huge advantage, not just that they're good veteran players, but but they're a good veteran team, you know. Yeah. Building a team is is part of winning, you know. Not you yeah. know, and not not just not just the talent of the players and, and designing offenses and defenses. But so so that's going to take us some time. But it's it's going to be fun. Yeah. Well, you know what? Probably the other five teams in the conference are uh, uh, feeling the yeah. same things, Coach. Hey, uh, Brian, thanks a bunch for this. Uh, really appreciate it. And once you get the lockers sorted out, we'll uh, we'll get together again uh, when you get a little closer to the start of the year and and uh, get an update on how things are going. Yeah. No, that's yeah. great, Kelly. I really I really appreciate talking to you again. It's been a while, and uh, it has. Uh, yeah. You're always one of my favorites. So so thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So, yeah. Let me know when you have to stop sneaking into the stadium with the cowboy hat and the mustache and dark glasses, okay? Absolutely. Thank goodness for masks. <laughs> it's, 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 it's worked so far. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just about blew your cover there. All right. Head coach of the U of M Football Bisons, Mr. Brian Doby, September 25th. Bisons home and season opener versus the University of Regina. Man, it feels good to say that. Right now, though, we are going to focus on golf because uh, on Father's Day Sunday, at least uh, I don't know what it's like in, in your house if you're a golf fan or not, but in my house, uh, you plunk it down on the couch and you watch the drama unfold to moments like this. As a father on my first Father's Day with my with my dad here to get this one done the way I did, this one might steal the show for a couple of days. <laughs> this is uh, very, very incredible, very, very hard to believe. John Rahm of Spain, who won the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines at San Diego, and our go-to guy for all things golf, 
from Prairie Golf Magazine, Jeremy Keeler, joining the show. Hey, Jeremy, how you doing, man? I am absolutely uh, wonderful. Uh, spent some time on the range this afternoon trying to figure out how to hit a golf ball any you know somewhere close to what John Ram does, and uh, I was still thirty yards short. Were you able to stick any of them in a tree? Yes, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not in the branches of a tree, but at the base of a tree. But before we talk about, we'll get back to Mackenzie Hughes in a minute, but let's talk about John Rahm because Jeremy, yesterday he put on a clinic, opened with two birdies, closed with two birdies, but unlike the rest of the field, pretty much stayed out of trouble for the most part for the other 14 holes. Well, he is one of the most efficient ball strikers, if not the most efficient ball striker on tour. So for him, he hits the ball uh, awful long way. He has a ball speed of about 180 miles an hour. He hits a relatively uh, a large amount of fairways. Um, and uh, he was able to to get good angles into the into the greens. And the, the biggest thing that I think he had going for him that probably no one else in the field has is he... Uh, his first win came at, at Torrey Pines back in uh, it was 2017. So, you know, for, for him, his game suits Torrey Pines. I mean, he's won there before, and um, he, he came into the final round. Yeah, he wasn't, uh, he was a couple back, three back from the leaders, but he had a chip on his shoulder, and he wanted to prove himself and, um, you know, show that uh, he still had it from Memorial. And it was, it was awesome TV, awesome drama. Yeah, it, it certainly was because there was a point before the scoreboard fell apart uh, where there was like, I think it was seven or eight golfers all within a stroke or two of the lead. It was setting up as just a magical afternoon. Uh, so just for those who might not be familiar with what happened to John Rahm a couple of weeks ago at the Memorial in Dublin, Ohio, Jeremy, uh, I mean, he was... He was just marching right along. He was going to he win was that fire. tournament. Yeah, absolutely he, he was. He was six shots clear. And what, what I think also helped him with this victory, it wasn't the fact that he, he um, you know, had the, the COVID positive test. But I think it was with, when, when he was leaving the 18th green uh, after the third round, that's when they announced it or they, they notified him of that. And I think yes. that kind of stuck with him. And that really put a fire fire under him that ultimately led to this victory yeah and and he played beautifully you mentioned his game uh you know lines up very well uh with the the tory pines course and of course you know there there's also the wind that you have to uh contend with coming off of the ocean but he's got that beautiful little fade uh, you know, I, I hadn't watched him play a lot. I hadn't had the opportunity to, for whatever reason. And so I kept on thinking, geez, I wonder how, you know, how, how he's doing that. But he did it on every single hole. Like, did he miss a fairway at all yesterday? Uh, he, he missed a couple, and it wasn't that he missed them by a lot. And he missed them on the right side. That's one of yeah. the, the, the things with, with uh, Torrey Pines is it's not necessarily um, missing the fairway. It's If you do miss the fairway, you have to miss it in the right spots. And again, with his ball striking, um, he was in full command of it. And and when he did mess uh, mess up or you know he had a couple bad shots, he left himself in in areas where he was able to scramble. So it wasn't like he put himself in a very bad position. Um, the other thing though too is his uh, his his putter was on fire. He made a lot of really really good yeah. putts. Um, the the thing is he had uh, 
the beginning of the week, uh, Callaway made him, through their Odyssey division, made him a brand-new putter. So his, his putter is a one-off. And they've been working with uh, the Toulon design team. So he has, he has a new putter that fits his eye. And, um, you know, we, when you get a new golf club, it's called the honeymoon phase. He was in the honeymoon phase most definitely with that club. And uh, it really, really showed itself, uh, especially with the last, last two birdies on uh, the last two holes. Yeah, that no, without a doubt. And while he's doing that, you know, and I, I looked at the clock uh, as I was watching the TV uh, because I wanted to remember where the the scoreboard started to bleed black. Uh, I mean, there was, you know, it, uh, I think there was Oosthuizen and uh, I'm trying to remember who else, and DeChambeau, I think, were both at five under. Then yeah. you had that group at four under, and then uh, there was a, a, another group of golfers about three or four deep that were three under. And it was right around five o'clock our time. And in the span of 45 minutes, the likes of Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, Rory McIlroy, Ustays uh, it to a certain degree, but not anywhere near to what the rest of them were, uh, were doing. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Mackenzie Hughes got caught on that. Everybody that was in that group all of a sudden fell. I mean, the, the golf course just ate them up, Jeremy. I, you know what, and it made for great drama, but in, in the same breath, you know, we don't really, I shouldn't say as, as someone who writes about this stuff, I don't really cheer for, I don't have like a, a, a certain player that I cheer for. Obviously we cheer for the Canadians and I was rooting hard for Mackenzie. And you can yeah. kind of tell that the, 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 the tree incident kind of just, there was no more air left in that balloon. And um, yeah. I mean, they say that the Masters starts on the back nine on Sunday. Well, this, for the first time in a long time, the U.S. Open started on the back nine on Sunday. And it was, it made for wonderful drama. And, you you know, all the way to the to the, the last shot, you didn't know who was going to win this. And, uh, or well, I mean, to the last, last hole or so. And that's exactly what you want. And that's ultimately what the USGA wants when they're setting up this course. They, as much as they like uh, runaway winners, they want the drama, they want the viewers, and that's exactly what they got. Yeah. Well, and, and even for Mackenzie Hughes, and just for, for people listening who might not be ultimate golf fans, going into the final round, uh, Louis Eustazen, who has uh, almost every major, he's been the runner-up since he won the Open back in 2010. Yeah. Uh, he shared the lead with Russell Henley and Mackenzie Hughes. And there's that old saying, Jeremy, uh, until you've been there and done that, uh, there's just no way to know how you're going to handle that. And, and certainly O'Handley, I thought, at least did a reasonable job uh, of, of staying out of uh, major wrecks. Uh, but when Mackenzie Hughes bogeyed three of the first six holes, he did get that nice bird on seven. Uh, but he dug himself probably in too deep a hole. And then, of course, for people who might not have been watching, uh, was it on, I think it was on 12. Uh, he shanks an iron way left. It bounces off the cart path into a tree and stays there. I've never seen that before. I, I do believe, I think it was Garcia. Oh, probably four years ago, five years ago. And I forget what tournament it was. I just re- vividly remember the, the picture of him climbing the tree. I can just see <laughs> his uh, agent, you know, freaking out at that. But um, that's the last time I remember a, a, a major event where a, a ball got stuck in the tree. And I, I have, I don't recall 
tournament and, and that happening to me, I don't think I've ever seen that at Pine Ridge or wherever the Canadian tour is. And I mean, the chances of that happening, I mean, the, the thing is if, if he just, if that ball just drew, you know, half a yard left, it's going to hit the rough and he'll have, you know, a chance at up and down. So yeah. like, what are the odds? I don't know, but it's not, you know, they're, they're very high odds. Yeah. You know, and Louis Eustazen had a chance. He was right there uh, until he found trouble to the left. Uh, it, on that 17th hole, as the commentators were saying, you've got all this room to the right. Why is it in golf, Jeremy, that we always go where we're not supposed to? And Louis did by going to the left where there was very, very little second cut to work with. Well, and I think that's what non-golfers probably don't understand about the sport is the frustration that, us golfers face when you know there's problem it's the same thing with water if you you know there's water yeah. to the to the to the right side and there's a big massive field to the left and you aim way left and it still goes right in the middle of the pond there's something mental about where we know where there's trouble and we can't help ourselves and we just somehow subconsciously put it there i wish there was reasoning behind you know there's a way how to how to how to prevent that because you know if, if you can find that please let me know i will pay great money for that but it's 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 like a magnet we just can't avoid it and in when you have major pressure too and you're you know in the back of your your mind you you know the the the, the problems to the left there are problems to the right and you're you just don't want to over overdo it too far to the left because that's going to make it a difficult shot i think that's just what happened was afraid of going too too far left um and i mean it's it's golf it happens right it's the 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 ability to be perfect especially when you're when you're at that high swing speed and that level of precision trying to hit a a certain shot um it's it's you know 70 75 (laughs) strokes or 74 strokes around it's bound to happen yeah, no, there's no doubt about no, that. You, uh, you know, you, you, feel bad for, you feel bad for him, but, you know, yeah. that's the golf, right? Yeah, yeah. No, he, the the great misfortune uh, for him was that, uh, you know, had he not sculled that shot, he might have had an opportunity to force a playoff, but uh, mm-hmm. that pretty well uh, uh, pretty well took him out of it. Hey, Jeremy, always enjoy talking golf with you. I know you're such a huge, huge uh, fan and, and so passionate about the game. Uh, uh, always, uh, always appreciate your insight. And um, what's coming up at Prairie Golf Magazine, by the way? Uh, we're doing some uh, course reviews. We're going to be uh, doing some trips out to out west. We want to, uh, now that the restrictions have lifted, we want to highlight uh, a lot more of the courses and, and the trips too. So, yeah. you know, to say Minnedosa, well, if you're coming from Winnipeg, where do you stop? Like, where's the places of interest? We're going to be hitting some uh, opens, so some uh, rural town opens, which are always fun. And then uh, we got some equipment stuff coming up. So some new equipment has been released, and uh, we uh, can't wait to uh, show it with everybody or share it with everybody. Right on it. And where can people find that when they're looking for it, Jeremy? PrairieGolfMagazine.com. Pretty easy. Even I could figure that out. And if I can, anybody can. Uh, just don't ask me to stay out of trouble in the water. <laughs> hey, Jeremy. You know what? Yeah. With, with, that, with that being said, if you get a good, if you get a good ball finder, you can, uh, you know, yeah. you can almost make a living collecting those things. 
Exactly. Jeremy Keeler of Prairie Golf Magazine, kind enough to join us with his thoughts on what was a very event-filled U.S. Open, for sure. Won by John Rahm, shooting a final four under 67 uh, to win uh, ahead of Louis Oosthuizen, who now I think has something like 10 or 11 runner-up uh, or top five finishes in majors and just hasn't been able to quite get there. The best news of all, certainly from a, a local aspect, would be another sterling performance by Winnipeg's very own Kelsey Wog, who is competing at the Canadian Olympic Swimming Trials in Toronto. And her coach from the University of Manitoba, Vlastimil Cherney, joins us now. Uh, Vlastic, I was a uh, bit on the website. Uh, constantly for the last four or five hours trying to get what the times were for the women's 200 uh, individual medley and they still haven't been able to post those numbers so I'm going to rely on you my friend uh, to be able to tell us how Kelsey did okay yeah she uh, she finished second uh, and her time was uh, two minutes ten uh, seconds and a couple of tenths so in the grand context of things, uh, I think you had texted me earlier, that's a personal best for Kelsey in that discipline? And that's right. That was her personal best. Uh, her personal best is from the 2019 World Championships when she competed in the semifinals. Right. And so, uh, in, in, and from an Olympic, uh, Canadian Olympic standard, uh, uh, does she uh, meet the qualification for that? And, and will she get a nomination to also compete in this particular event? That's correct. So she was quite a bit under the standard, about two seconds. And uh, Sydney Pickram, who won the event, uh, also went obviously under the standard. So both of them will be nominated in that event. And of course, yesterday, uh, Kelsey had already, I don't want to say punched her ticket to Tokyo because uh, there's the, the, the team still has to be named, but uh, I don't think it happens very often where a swimmer uh, exceeds the standard and doesn't get picked for the team. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, if you have two, so Canada can enter two swimmers in one individual event, uh, providing they're both under the FINA A standard, which is a uh, which is a really fast standard. And so she she did that by winning the high breaststroke last night, which was really that sort of monkey off her back. She got the qualifying for the team, even though it says it's nomination. Um, basically, if you swim the standard and you finish in top two in an individual event, you will be selected to the team. Okay, so we could say she punched her ticket to Tokyo then. Yes, you can say that. <laughs> and 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 the and the interesting part of all of this, Vlastimil, is she's not done yet. She still has, uh, and I believe, if if memory serves me correct, this is her specialty: uh, the two hundred breast. That's correct. That is her uh, favorite event. That is her top event. Uh, and uh, that is the, the event that we have been focusing our training on as well. So it, was a, it wasn't a surprise that she swam well in the 100, uh, but uh, it certainly, uh, the training has been geared towards the 200 meters. Right, and so she must be. She, at least in the in the interviews that we've had, you know, athletes always act differently around the media. Uh, but you know, she's very calm, very uh, soft spoken. Uh, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't say a lot, but says a lot with what she says, if that makes sense. But uh, 
deep down inside, though, she she must be just doing dump, uh, jumping jacks rather with what she's yeah, been sure. able to do. For sure, she's she's excited. She's a little bit in disbelief because that was, you know, it, it was a spot that eluded her uh, five years ago when we were here in 2016. She swam under the Olympic standard in the 200 breaststroke, uh, but finished third. You know, one of the veterans uh, had an outstanding performance and touched her out. So. So we, we came back to uh, to repeat uh, five years later and uh, to be able to do that on the very first race was was fantastic. And today she actually picked up. So uh, speaking of punching the ticket, she picked up her gear uh, today and she was showing it all off and was all excited. So, but still, oh. still not quite believe in her accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic to hear. Uh, there's, I, I can't imagine there can be an, a greater feeling. And uh, last of all, back when you were competing, did, did you get to swim nationally for your uh, uh, native country, the Czech Republic? Uh, I did compete internationally. Uh, uh, I competed in the European Championships uh, in 1982 and split. Uh, and then, then I moved on and, of course, competed in 88 in Seoul Olympics for Canada. Right, yeah. So I was just going to say, you've lived that, that, that experience of, of getting that national team gear. And I can't imagine there's a greater feeling for an athlete than that, than I guess maybe possibly winning a medal. Absolutely. That, that's a pride that, uh, you know, that you work, you work for the accomplishment and when it actually happens, uh, it's, it's quite something. And so, of course, uh, medal would be the next step. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You have had a chance to work with some pretty top-notch talent uh, here in the province of Manitoba. It was funny, we were talking to Brian Doby. He's going into his 26th season in football. He talked That's about right. Garth Pitchkey's 38 years. Ken Bentley's been forever with a women's volleyball. Uh, Mike Surratt with hockey. And I said, yeah, and we're going to be talking with Lostamil Turney. Is it season number 29 or 30 that you're going into this year? Oh, my goodness. I stopped counting. <laughs> <laughs> 1993 was my first season. Okay, well, it's 29 then, so there you go. <laughs> so when you look back on that, and and uh, as I mentioned, you've had some awfully good talent to work with, but is Kelsey kind of the high standard now with what she's been able to achieve in her career? Yeah, I think Kelsey definitely has, and and it's you know she's she's unique. She came from a, also she had a different sport that she was competitive in. She was competitive in uh, Highland dancing, and uh, and and but definitely early on her talent showed. But what really showed that she she has grown as a as an athlete because her early success came from talent. Now her success is coming from perseverance and training harder and really learning to compete at a higher level. And so ultimately the psychology plays a huge role and she has matured tremendously in that area. Yeah, she's just uh, had a, a fabulous run here for the last little while. It's going to be so much fun watching her compete in Tokyo. And Vlastimil, when you said that when we talked near the beginning of the interview uh, that you had focused more of the training 
on the 200 breast as opposed to the 100. What are some of the subtle differences? We might not be able to see them, you know, with the eye of, of, of a, a lay person, but what are some of the subtle differences in training? Is it diet? Is it uh, actually in the pool? Uh, is it, uh, it's, it, it's, it's mainly in the pool. Some of it is also genetic. You know, each athlete is predisposed more towards a certain event. So if you're more of a sprinter and you have more fast twitch muscle fiber, you will be you will be um, more towards the sprinting events, but uh, Kelsey's always been balanced. But one of the things that she has is a, an extremely unique kick that she's got lots of flexibility, but her feet come come out uh, past her hips, and when she tries to sprint, it doesn't always work. And so, but it's well suited for the 200 meters, where she can get lots of power from her breaststroke kick. Do you think that some of that might be from being a Highland dancer? It could be. We've always looked at her dancing as, as great training towards the breaststroke because breaststroke uh, propulsion is much more from the, from the legs, from the kick. I would be remiss, Vlastamil, uh, uh, if I didn't ask you about another one of your protégés competing in Toronto this week, and that's Daniel Boguski. How's he doing? Uh, Daniel, Daniel's been, this is his first time uh, on uh, this uh, stage. He had a he had a solid swim. He didn't quite accomplish what he wanted or what we wanted him to do, which was perform at his best here. But he needs to season himself still at the, at this level. Uh, but he had a he had a solid race. Great. Well, that's good that it was been a it's been a positive experience for uh, for the young guy, and uh, uh, no doubt uh, with his teammate doing as well. That's uh, helped make it a a little bit more of a an enjoyable week as well. Now, will you go to Tokyo with Kelsey as well, Vlastimo? Uh, I, I won't find out until the competition's over. That's when they're selecting the coaching staff. Uh, um, but the way Kelsey typically the coaches get selected on the performance of the athlete, so. Um, the way Kelsey is swimming, uh, it is quite possible that I will be. Well, that will uh, certainly be uh, a great experience. I don't know if you uh, have even had time to hear uh, what's been going on outside of the uh, the swimming venue, uh, but earlier today, uh, the organizers in Japan announced that they were going to uh, have very limited audiences uh, in terms of the capacity at indoor and outdoor venues, and they'd be Japanese spectators only. So it will be a home crowd in Tokyo in every sense of the word. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, we, we expected that. We, we saw the news as well. And, and, you know, we basically what we had here, there was no spectators, even though the live replay uh, had lots of spectators in the background. There were no spectators in the uh, in the arena, and we had we had quite a number of excellent swims at the Olympic trials here so far. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, it'll be great uh, for Team Canada for sure. Yeah, this young um, what's the name of the fourteen-year-old uh, Cameron McIntosh? Do I have that name right? Yeah, no, uh, it's um, McIntosh is the last name. Uh, Summer escapes me now. Summer, Summer McIntosh. Summer McIntosh, yeah. yeah. yeah what, a, what a story, 14 years old. Oh, incredible, incredible race. I actually was on the national team with her mother. <laughs> so <laughs> she's, got some ge- she's got some genetics. <laughs> oh, boy, does she ever, you bet. Hey, well, listen, if you get a chance to talk to Kelsey, uh, pass along congratulations from her hometown, if you would. And uh, uh, I don't know if she's on social media, but if she is, show off some of that Team Canada gear if she wouldn't mind. 
All right. I'll let her know. <laughs> okay. Blastable, thanks a bunch for this. It's been great chatting with you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Blastable Cherney, the uh, swimming coach for the University of Manitoba Bisons, and uh, there as well uh, with his star protege, Kelsey Wagu, is qualified for the Olympics in two disciplines, the 100 breast and the 200 individual medley. And tomorrow morning, she'll try to make it three for three in her specialty, the women's 200-meter breaststroke.